electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, guys, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, how to play the drop in rates and whether it means stocks are in trouble or simply setting up for a midsummer rally. We'll debate that with our investment committee. And BlackRock's Rick Reeder today, excited to have him on our show. Joining me for the hour, Liz Young, Surat Saiti, Steve Weiss, Josh Brown. Let's check stocks first and foremost. They're down sharply, cutting their losses, though. The 10-year touching a new near-term low. There you go, 129 is where we currently sit. Dow is down 500, down about 250 right now. All right, so Liz Young, right? The question is, what's going on with rates? Is it simply just about positioning? Does the bond market know something the stock market doesn't? What do you tell us? What do you tell our viewers who are wondering that same question today? Yeah, I mean, this is a question that I think we all woke up wondering, and I don't have a better explanation than most other people on exactly what's happening with the tenure. But what I can tell you is this. I think we're going through three big transitions in the market and as investors, the first of which is that we're moving from the first half of the year to the second half of the year. And I think there's going to be a clear division in the two. And that's going to be characterized in the second half by a search for catalysts. So that's what we're looking for right now. What's the next catalyst? The second big transition is that we're moving from rebound to recovery. We've now rebounded to prior levels of GDP, prior levels of earnings. So now we're searching for where does that new growth come from? We don't have an answer to that yet. And then the last one is that we're moving from momentum to fundamentals and investors need to search for durability. This is a transition. Transitions are never smooth. They're never easy. And we're probably going to continue to chop around here until we figure out what that next tailwind is. Okay. So, Josh Brown, let's cut through some of the noise, right? Let's let's move beyond this one day move, cut through the noise, which you're so good at, at doing. And I just bring up that conversation I had yesterday again with that large money manager said, don't take any of this in the market as some sort of signal that growth is peaking, that the move is long stocks, yields are low because of where all the liquidity is. The liquidity is not going away anytime soon. Get this noise out of the way. Tech's going higher. Stocks are going higher. Who cares if rates are where they are? It's for a specific reason. Move on. Thank you very much. What do you think? Well, I guess a couple of things. The first is raise your hand if you've been a successful investor by making inflation predictions short term over the last 10 years. Oh, I see that no one's hands are raised. This is not literally how to allocate a portfolio. That's one. Two, um, the Treasury market does not do a good job at predicting inflation. Bond traders are no better than anyone else. The Fed's not good at it. So this idea that the 10-year is this clarion call for where inflation is going is is kind of foolish. What we know, looking back at long-term history, is that the bond market systematically has overpriced uh, uh, the rate of inflation for very long periods of time, and it's also underpriced it. And a really great example, from 1981 to 2007, systematically the bond market thought 
inflation was higher than what it actually was. It wasn't until 2007 that reality set in. So people expecting the 70s went from 1981 for another 26 years overpricing inflation. And it, all you have to do is plot CPI versus 10-year yield. So we should stop this game immediately. What the Treasury market does well is price in longer term inflation, not yesterday's CPI report. Okay, so that's not a a winning game for investors. I think big picture, the Nasdaq just went up six straight weeks. That's a lot. It's up 14 percent year to date. So seeing these tech stocks pull back basically from all time highs, seeing the semis take a breather, seeing the, the fangs take a breather. There's nothing wrong with that. That should happen. We saw the Qs down 1.8% at the lows this morning. Mm-hmm. Now they're only down about 1%. There's not a lot of damage there. Last thing, REITs, unbelievably strong. That should not be happening if we think interest rates, are, or if we think 10-year rates are about to crash to the floor. REITs are green today, almost all of them. Staples are barely down. So I, I think we have to divorce this idea that the bond market is, quote-unquote, telling us something about economic growth. It's never done a good job at that in the very short term. That's why I say let's let's cut through some of the noise and stop trying to reading into every single move in the market and just bottom line it, Weiss. Thank you. You know what low rates are good for? You know what they're good for, Weiss? Stocks. Right? For stocks, especially in a in in an environment where you're going to have growth continue to pick up. Right. That that's the view I hear. Because mm-hmm. you're going to have a boom in the fourth quarter because inventories are at five-year lows. We're not even close to done with this recovery. In fact, we're just getting started. Do you want to counter that or agree with it? I'm going to agree. So I'm also going to agree with Josh. You know, I grew up in two bond houses on the street, Solomon Brothers and Lehman Brothers, actually, with Rick. And there's always this perception that, that bond investors were smarter, that the bond guys in our firms were smarter, and women. And as it turns out, it's not because they picked the markets any better. It's because they were able to figure out a way to get paid more than the equity guys. So, look, so here's what I'd say. I'd say that there's <laughs> nothing there there. We have yields coming down because you've had high short interest, like I was shorted. You've seen some covering. The facts are that you have massive liquidity. And it was only a few weeks ago that we were craving these low rates, that they were phenomenal for the market, particularly for technology. So today, to me, was just a misplacement, a mischaracterization of what low low rates mean. And it's not rates, actually, low yield. Right. Rates are at zero. Sure. And they're going to go up. So here's what I'd say. These are opportunities. Take a look at what traded down immediately, XPO, FedEx. There's a lot of fear. I'm more concerned about the administration going further and further left. We get more of that every single day. The good news is I don't think they get anything done. So to me, it's, I wouldn't say party on. I'm a little cautious. I've been looking for a little bit of a correction and had raised some cash, and I'm getting ready to deploy. But I would just say you deploy into quality. The days of trying to buy everything and watch it go up, those are over because you're at the end of the rate cycle right now. Surat, so Evercore today with a note says from a technical perspective, bond yields could move down to 125 or even lower. So, I mean, we've basically been hanging around that, that area. If they do... That would provide significant new stimulus for housing and stock prices, right? And which stock prices? I don't know. Maybe those ARC stocks. Maybe the growth stocks. Maybe the tech stocks. Maybe the FANG stocks. The ones that have been going up as rates have been coming down take today out of the equation. 
I agree. I mean, I think, you know, you've got a, a story that if rates go down even more, you'll get more capital into the equity markets. There's really no place to be in the bond market unless you're a pension fund and you have to put money in there. And then we do have, uh, as everybody's mentioned, we do have some great some great growth coming in the next couple of quarters. I mean, GDP is going to be really strong. The savings rates are really high. We've still got more stimulus. And, and we've got people coming back to work. So I do think stocks are the place to be. And, and if we pull back a little bit, we've got earnings coming starting next week. So you do have some people repositioning, getting a little bit nervous, taking some money off the table. But I agree with Steve. I think high-quality companies, companies that have sold off, uh, put capital to work in there, uh, especially for the next few quarters. Right, I'm going to put you on the spot. And I, forgive me for doing it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, stocks are the place to be, you said. Put money into stocks that have pulled back. All right, which one? Which ones? Which which ones fit into that category I mean, right now, Surat? So for me, it'd be the semis. You know, I like Qualcomm in there. Uh, I like the General Motors in there as well. Um, I mean, Amazon's come back, but it's still not where, where, where it should be. So high-quality companies. XPO is a big holding of ours. Steve knows that. We've been in that together. Uh, those are some quality companies there that I like. Uh, that I would add to. Okay, so you manage that well. I knew you'd have some names for me. I appreciate that. Let's bring in our headliner now to join the conversation. Rick Reeder manages $2.6 trillion as CIO of BlackRock's global fixed income team. He's also head of the global allocation team. Mr. Reeder, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Just I, I, can, I de- can I defend all the swipes at the bond people, too? That, that's, that was aggressive. <laughs> Our gang's a little aggressive at times. You, you know how we roll, right? You know how we roll wow. in I don't know. That was tough. <laughs> uh, well, now you're sort of an everything guy, right? I mean, you control yeah, two and a, $2.6 trillion uh, across the spectrum. What, what are we supposed to think of this move in rates? So... So I'm outside. Well, one thing maybe to respond a bit to to some of the commentary. Listen, I think rates do one thing very well. They equilibrate supply and demand. We are going through this extraordinary period of liquidity that, by the way, changes at the end of this month. So so people underestimate. Everybody talks about the Fed taper and how much the Fed's doing in in the form of QE. But the Treasury's general account keeps paying down and it's going to pay down again a significant amount this month. So the system is bursting with liquidity. And, and quite frankly, everybody knows that rates should be higher than where they are. These real rates, given the economy and how it's, uh, how it's doing, and we can, we can, we, by the way, we talk about some evolution of the economy, but the economy, how well it's doing, these real rates are priced wrong. There's too much liquidity in the system. And then you get a catalyst where, where positioning is short and, and you move there. So I don't, I don't, I mean, I agree with the commentary around inflation and uh, but I do think there's a liquidity dynamic that if you get when you get into the second half of the year, I know we've talked about it on the show, when you get in the second half of the year or more so into the fall, you'll get a dynamic where the amount of issuance the Treasury is doing when you don't have that much liquidity coming in, it'll be a different paradigm. But for now, it's definitely equilibrating the fact that you have so much liquidity coursing its way through the system. And people think that real rates should move higher, ourselves included. I mean, these real rates are ridiculous. Um, but it's going to take a bit of time, and you've got to be a bit patient around that. Right. So regardless of where they should be, let's play the game at where they are, right? Low rates, system, in your words, bursting with liquidity. That sounds positive for stocks to me. Listen, I, mean, I still think equities are going higher. I mean, uh, Josh's points are well taken, and uh, as he said, it's well taken. I mean, uh, we've rallied a lot. I mean, <laughs> you know, we did pull back a bit, but I was watching all your headlines yesterday about new record here, new record here. We, we've... We've rallied a lot. I still think stocks are going higher. When you go through some of these companies that you all know, just talked about, some of these quality companies are throwing off 20% ROE, and you've got positive momentum around growth. 
Um, I think they're, they're going to go higher. You think about where we're going to be. Sometimes you have to invest based on where are we going to be two to three years hence. And if you think of where we're going to be two to three years hence, the returns you're going to get from these companies throwing off this sort of ROE, this sort of earnings growth is, uh, and by, by the way, not just earnings growth, but free cash flow yields or earnings yields, pretty darn attractive, including places like software. People talk about software as too much of a growth. There are a lot of companies within software that are actually throwing off tremendous amounts of revenue today, and their multiples are, are not unreasonable given, given, that, uh, given that level of, uh, of cash flow. All right, so now I'm confused because, uh, you know, one, one minute ago you're defending the bond guys, right? And now I feel <laughs> like you're, you're dissing the bond market because what if I come back and say, well, isn't the bond market usually right, Rick? I mean, maybe the bond market's telling us something the stock market either doesn't know or doesn't want to hear. So I don't, by the way, I don't think it's, I don't, given the amount of liquidity in the system, I don't think one is necessarily right versus the other. You know, why can the equity market be as buoyant as it is while the bond market is well supported? It's just too much liquidity in the system. People are, are the amount of demand for yield in the system and the amount of demand for returns. Think about if you're a pension fund, you're an endowment, uh, you're an insurance company, the demand for yield is extraordinary. So I don't, I don't necessarily think one is right versus one is wrong. I do think bonds today are, are aggressively priced. My sense is when you think about where they're going to be three to six months hence, they're going to be, they're going to be higher in yield. But I think you've got to be a bit patient today because particularly this month when you've got this sort of liquidity coursing its way through the system. And by the way, there's some, you know, some of the data, you know, I've talked about, I don't know, on this show, but on, uh, you know, some of the shows earlier, the, the growth in China is slowing a bit. And one of the things that's really interesting in the economy, and I've been pretty bullish on your show about growth, I still think growth is going to be good. But what's happening is some of the supply, you're actually not able to fulfill some of that growth. You see that in houses, you see that in cars. By the way, you see that in people, is that there's actually, you know, we're going to operate through with what will be great growth, tremendous demand. It's actually a bit trickier today to actually supply that demand. Hmm. Um, when you're the king, you get everybody queuing up to ask you questions, Rick. That's what we've got today. Liz, Liz Young, you're first. Hi, Rick. Thanks for being on with us. So I am a firm believer of never let a good correction go to waste. And it sounds like you would be on that side in the equity market right now, be positioned there. But you warned us about a liquidity dynamic that might happen in fall and an economic evolution. If we have a bond correction in fall, is that a correction that we lean into in bonds, or is that a correction that we wait out? Yeah, Liz, I, it's a great question. So I think there's a couple of things. One, I don't think rates are going that high. I mean, I think, A, you're going to have a Fed that is going to be unbelievably deliberate. You've got an ECB that uh, just told us they're going to be even more deliberate. So I don't think rates are going that high. That demand for income, that demand for yield, and the fact that pension funds are now fully funded, they're going to have a bid for fixed income. So I don't think rates are going to go that higher. Should they go up? You know, should the 10-year be a 175 versus where it is today? Absolutely. So I, but I don't think it's, you'll have some dislocating moments, but I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it, 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 at the end of the day, it's terribly disruptive for equities. One of the things that was amazing, you go back a, a week ago, the volatility markets were unbelievably cheap and, uh, and building this extraordinary amount of complacency. That was, I think that was mispriced. So having a bit more volatility, anticipating more volatility, I think is the right thing. Let me ask you this before I bring in Josh Brown. What's the chance of 1% on the 10-year, or, or close? So, you know, one thing I've learned, even in, despite being in the, uh, the not-so-smart bond guy category, the uh, one thing I've learned is you have to follow the technicals. I don't think, I don't think we're going to hit that. In fact, I think the odds are very remote that we're going to hit that. But I also think you've got to be respectful of, listen, when things start to move and you've got, and you've got uh, huge amounts of uh, people that are offsides against that, 
And you have to be respectful of it. And, uh, you know, we did some things this morning, you know, around the portfolio just to be respectful of, the, of this, uh, this move you've seen in rates. But, gosh, I think, the, I think the odds of that are pretty darn low. I think the base case is you don't assume that's going to happen. What do you mean you did some things in the portfolio? Can you share that with our viewers? Well, you're yeah, going to drop so a hint so. like that and then not go into details. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot that we do in the options market and a lot that you hold some convexity to the upside in interest rates, meaning if rates move, that you actually have optionality, that you get longer your interest rate exposure. And then uh, so, you know, we were able to keep, keep that on while we're, you know, reducing some of the other side of it. So so having some real upside convexity to what I would call tail risk, that rates rally. So we were doing a bit of that this morning. You know, I've had people come on the program in, in recent past and say, you know, you want to be in financials, great place to be. Go through all the reasons why everybody wants to buy the banks. Um, I don't see how financials do much in this kind of environment, but I, mean, I guess it's not for yeah. me to say. What do, what do you think? So we, we've, I mean, that's the one area we've trimmed a lot of financials. Not necessarily because, uh, well, there's a couple of things. One, the uh, you know they're functionally become an interest rate proxy. So we have we have reduced some of that. Um, secondly, you know, when you get banks that trade at two times book or that trade at, at multiples that are hard to justify without significant earnings growth, you know, we think it's worth taking some chips off the table. And, and plus, we think a lot of people have gotten long financials as either an interest rate call or a, or a beta call or what have you. So we paired some of that back. The only place in Europe, we've also paired back some of our European financial exposure. But today, you know, some of those European stocks got hit pretty hard. And so we added a bit this morning. I mean, when you've got banks that traded in Europe that traded a fraction of book versus two times book in the U.S., you know, some of those, while well, well, ROEs are lower, those valuations are okay. So we added a bit today. Not a lot, but we added a bit today. Okay, good to know. Uh, Josh Brown, you're up. Then Steve Weiss. So I just I, I wanted to just add a little bit of nuance to the conversation about uh, the bond market not being a good predictor <laughs> he feels of, bad now. of inflation. <laughs> Rick, no, this, I, is Josh I, I Brown, this is bit. Josh Brown's apology. I understand. <laughs> His, I don't know a little bit of contrition. He's a smart guy. But the reason I'm saying that the reason I'm saying that is not to say that like oh bond traders are dumb. Bond traders aren't in control of the price that bonds sell at. And Rick, you made this point. That's true. Uh, yeah. You think about the ocean of bonds issued in 2020, just trillions of dollars. Who bought those bonds? It's not prop shops. It's not Goldman Sachs asset management. 64% of that new debt went to the government, insurance companies, right. and banks. Then you have the pension funds in there. What are they doing? Why are they buying? They have to. They're offsetting liabilities. They're not making an inflation call. They're buying no matter what the inflation, what, no matter what the inflation prediction is. They're buying treasuries. It's part of their mandate in how they manage money. Now I throw in sovereign wealth. We know foreign yeah. governments own, uh, or foreigners in general, own 25% of the existing treasury market. So this idea that we're actually setting inflation expectations via trades is just a false construct. So it's not impugning the intelligence of people participating in the bond market. It's just being realistic. It's a liquidity story. It's not an economic call. Rick, I'll let you react to that and accept my apology. No, no, no. I'm still a little bit offended, but no, I totally appreciate that. Your point, your point, your point, your points are, are incredibly well taken. The buyers today of interest rates are not are generally not economic buyers. Nobody's saying, "Gosh, get me real rates at negative one percent when you've got an economy right. booming at it's going to grow over seven percent." No, nobody, nobody is and nobody will. 
What's happened is, you've cre- A, there's some shorts that have been created. B, like you say, the pension funds that are now much more pull- fully funded and can defease their liabilities, they're buying. You've got, like you say, you've got the Fed in buying. And then you've got the banking system today is getting flooded with less liquidity, a lot of this through the TGA drawdown. So you're right. I mean, that is definitely right. It is an expression of not valuation or, quite frankly, it's not an interpretation of where inflation is. It is just literally uneconomic buying that's taking place. Don't disagree with it, with any of that. Yeah. Uh, Steve Weiss, uh, you're up. And uh, let me just note, as uh, you get set to ask your question, I'm just noticing the Dow is uh, down about 230. Again, just to make note of the fact that it was down 500 at some point today, a little bit earlier, even a little bit more than that. But there you go, 236, cutting its losses somewhat significantly as the Dow Jones Industrial Average at about 20 after uh, noon here in the east. All right, Steve Weiss, you're up. Yeah, and for the record, I think bond guys are smarter because they know how to get paid, as I said. <laughs> Let's go to no. China for a second. So you mentioned China appears to be slowing, and there's talk of another major stimulus by the Chinese government. How much of that is directed at the economy versus going to the stock market and propping that up, which has had an horrendous run? And that will, you know, by instructing the banks to lend more, possibly feeding the system. We've seen that before do positive things for their market. So that's really more my question. They can't do much to loosen up the supply chain. That guy's been cast. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think there's some truth to that. Listen, I think the bigger picture at play in China is you're seeing significant slowdown. You see it through credit extension or slowdown of, of credit. You see, you see in the dynamics around, around domestic growth. And so I think, I think generally that policy evolution is because, you know, we think in the, in the third and fourth quarter, you're going to see, you know, what could be in one of the quarters, a three and change percent handle on growth in China. That, I mean, that's significant slowdown from where we've been. So to loosen up policy a little bit. And by the way, you have to think about where they're coming from. China has been very critical of U.S. Fed of U.S. policy, monetary policy, has been unbelievably easy. That's pumped in immense amounts of liquidity. So the Chinese have are actually at a place today where they can be a bit easier because they haven't really heretofore. And uh, and I think the growth, I think the slowdown that they're seeing across the number and by the property space in China, it's I mean it's slowing down. And so I think. And by the way, I think China, you know, keeping one eye on China for the rest of this year is hugely important. I mean, the demand for commodities. The, the, the influence they have on growth in Europe and the emerging markets. I think China is a really big deal, but your point is well taken. When they are, they are clearly shifting policy, or at least talking about shifting policy, and I think that's pretty significant for, um, you know, and I, by the way, it does tend to buoy those markets, but, uh, but I know, I think it's important to watch the growth over there. So given where we are right now and what rates are doing and, and where, you know, they seem to be anchored, for a, a little mm-hmm. while at least, would you up and are you upping exposure to technology um, be, because of where we are? So, Suzanne, I think if you have me on for the next five years, I still love, and I think, I think Josh describes it well, and I, th- I, I still love, I mean, that when I look at semis and I look at, and I look at software and I look at the evolution of, of where the world is going, and, and, uh, and by the way, there's some things in artificial intelligence, this thing's in space, there's some unbelievably interesting things that are developing. And, I, and when I look at it, I, I'm, a, I'm a hound, maybe this is from the bond side, I, I, I mean, I, I, I die to look at 
free cash flow yield. These companies are throwing off incredible amounts of, of free cash flow yield with not a lot of debt. And for a bond guy or for a former bond guy, that is a, um, that is a really powerful thing. And these companies will continue to do that. Sure. So anyway, I like tech. Question of where you're coming from. Do you increase the exposure yeah. or not? But having a healthy exposure to tech um, I think is I think is going to be the case for a long while. But but I want to know if you're if you're increasing your exposure oh. to tech because there was a time not that long ago yeah, when yeah. you were on where you know rates were in a different place and you were adjusting your allocations to things like tech maybe the fangs or, or otherwise and now given the dynamic in rates I literally want to know like now are you are you adding to tech? Not really. We've added. I mean, we've had a healthy exposure. And uh, through thick and thin, we've had a healthy exposure to tech. Are we adding a lot? Not really. We've added a little bit in the, in the last, certainly in the last few weeks on software. And uh, I actually added a bit in semis today, but small. Mm. So not really, but we're running, you know, we're definitely running. I mean, where, we've, where we've turned around, we've reduced a bit recently is some of the big tech that it's had, a, including, yeah, including the last couple of days, that's had a really good run. And so we've reduced a little bit of that, but um, but we have. I mean, we've kept a core technology position, and we're going to leave it where we are. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate you going into a little more detail for me. Rick Surratt has a question for you too. Go ahead, Surratt. Uh, Rick, question on spreads. You know, one of the things that we always look on the on the, uh, on the on the fixed income side is when spreads start widening, that kind of gives an indication of equities. We haven't even seen any of that. Do you see any of that forthcoming? Because that sometimes is even a better harbinger than the long term uh, bond market. By the way, it is better, and uh, your, your point is dead right. You know, I follow, when I look at equity valuations, I look at, I look at, literally look at where earnings and cash flow is relative to where companies finance it, because to me, that is the ultimate outcome. If you can do, if you can borrow at cheap levels, you can do CapEx, you can do M&A, you can do R&D. And so today, part of why equities are actually still reasonable is because, like you say, because credit yields are, are unbelievably attractive to companies and will buoy growth. So, you know, I don't think they're going to widen a lot because, A, there's massive demand for yield, and, B, the default power in this growth dynamic, uh, unless there's some exogenous shock to a company or a sector, boy, it's hard seeing where a lot of defaults are going to come from. You know, I find the levels today in high yield to be, to be unappealing <laughs> in terms of, you know, so we've pared back some of our high yield because I think that is, you know, I'd rather on my beta and things like equities. And, um, but, but, you know, in terms of investment-grade credit, boy, the demand for yield from pensions, from international investors, and to get incremental yield, particularly the long end of the curve if you're matching a long-dated liability, well, I think those spreads, you're not going to get hurt because of defaults. And uh, so I, my sense is they could widen a little bit, but I don't think they're going very far. You made us. By the way, I think you're dead right on, on, uh, on, on using that as a metric. I don't think most people in the markets use that. And that's, I think that's a better metric than, than the 10-year note. Uh, I, I Companies just, don't borrow off the 10-year note. I was just going to say you made us smarter today, so you can definitely feel better. I don't know. About where this conversation <laughs> began. Rick Reeder, I always appreciate it. We really got through a lot. Thanks, guys. Thanks for your time. Thank we'll you, talk sir. to you soon. That's Black Thanks Rock's Rick Reeder joining us now. Coming up, both John and Pete, they're not on the show today, but they are making interesting moves in the market, which is why they're going to join us with a special unusual activity. That's coming up in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. 
Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. COVID cases are back on the rise in America. The White House COVID Task Force says that new infections are up 11 percent over last week, with the vast majority of new cases among the unvaccinated. The head of the CDC saying that 93 percent of infections are happening in counties with vaccination rates below 40 percent. And on the news tonight, the Delta variant threatening the U.S. recovery and also worrying the markets. Nectarell looks at the hot spots and also what's being done to slow the spread. Fifteen more states have joined a settlement with Purdue Pharma, moving the company closer to resolving opioid lawsuits and exiting bankruptcy. The updated agreement calls for Purdue to release millions of internal documents. Nine states and the District of Columbia have not signed on. And first, it was drought. Now it's grasshoppers and lots of them. They are infesting farms and ranches in Utah and 14 other states where the ultra dry weather has helped the bugs survive and multiply. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. It's like cicadas, grasshoppers. What's next? We just next? can't win. I What's know. next? All right, Rahel, <laughs> thank you. Rahel Solomon. I mentioned the Nigerian brothers making moves in the market today. We wanted you to know about John and Pete now joining us. Doc, you're up first. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming on today, even though it's All not right. a regularly scheduled day. What are you doing? Sure. Well, Scott, uh, right at the end of the show yesterday, uh, somebody stepped in in a big way into the SPXU. This is a triple levered ETF that's triple levered inverse. In other words, obviously, it goes up as the SPX goes down. And that was pretty shrewd timing, you might say, Scott, because obviously we got the news out of Tokyo about no uh, visitors at the games and so forth. And the markets were tumbling this morning. Um, Those 17 calls, that's the strike price they bought, which were at the money yesterday, were purchased for about 40 cents. Those shot up, tripling the the move in the S&P 500. And um, we took off that trade, Scott. So 42,000 of those. That's the biggest trade we have tracked in that triple levered ETF. Now, the good news, if you want to view it as good, I guess, is that this was a very short-term trade. The options expire next Friday, so it wasn't like somebody was projecting, Scott, that, oh, over the next weeks and months, we're going to see a 20% decline. No, they were predicting or at least betting on uh, a decline in the short term. They got it today, 
Was that the whole of it? I don't know, but I took the profits and got out because the options only have one more week to live. Well, so you just went along for the ride uh, for a short, short-term play. Yes, and as you said, just to make sure our viewers understand, you're, you're, you took it off. You're no longer uh, involved there. Pete is I with am me. no longer in it. All right. That's true. Uh, Pete's with me on the phone, right? Pete, you hear me? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, thank you for calling in. Uh, it's a double dose sure. of the Nigerians today. What, what's, uh, <laughs> what's going on with you today? Well, a couple of things, Scott. I, um, I've been watching Apple really closely. We've had 12 unusual hits just in the last two weeks in there, which uh, stock was starting off at 129 bucks a share back on June 14th. It's obviously been running. We've been tracking that. Everybody's been tracking that. But you go back to just a, a week and a half ago, they were buying the July 137 strike calls, Scott, and, and the stock was significantly lower, and the stock has exploded since. On Tuesday, they were buying the July 149 calls, so they continue to extend up. Because of that, when the stock actually was getting hit pretty hard today, you know, on Tuesday the stock actually got up to 143. Yesterday it was almost 145. Today it pulled back and was opening at 141. And I was watching it for a really long time. It kind of hovered around there. And I just decided, you know what? I think Apple makes a lot of sense. All of this bullish activity that's not just in July, it actually even goes further out, makes a lot of sense to me still. So that one was just a gut reaction. It wasn't based on today's unusual. It was based on all of the unusual options that we've seen for a while, expecting this stock to continue. It's already bounced a little bit. I expect to see this stock actually even as soon as tomorrow or maybe next week, back towards that 145 level. So yeah, I was I mean, able to jump it, on a bunch of calls there. It, it's only two bucks away from, from that high, Pete, um, mm-hmm. in an environment where we've talked about almost every day of mega cap, fang plus stocks hitting new highs almost every single yeah. day, whether it's Microsoft or Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook. We've mm-hmm. just been waiting on Alphabet to join that part. I mean, uh, Apple to join that party. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be heading in that direction. It is. And I would also say this, Scott, I'll give you a quick unusual for you, if it's okay, yeah. uh, with Oracle. Uh, now, Oracle, that's not a name we talk about, right? I mean, once in a while we talk about Cisco. I bought that about a month and a half, two months ago, um, just because it seemed like it was the right time. And, it, and it, it's not done a whole lot stock-wise. I still think when I look at valuation and I look at cash flows and everything else, and I just was listening to Rick Reeder talking about that, Oracle's in the same sort of a camp, except for the fact that Oracle is performing. As a matter of fact, we had buyers just yesterday. They were buying the 85 strike calls in Oracle. Stock immediately took off. Those options that were 30 and 40 cents went to over $2 rapidly. They came back again today, Scott, with this pullback that we are seeing in the markets. And they went into Oracle at the 87 strike calls. Again, around 30 cents is about what they were paying for the 6,000 of those. I think that this is another one of these stocks where I don't think it's done. I think there's still room to the upside, and I think that this stock absolutely can break through with 87 levels of yesterday and go a lot higher. It still only trades at 15 times earnings and $15 billion in operating cash flow. This is a name that I think gets looked over a lot, but we probably shouldn't do that. Did you also have another one in a Chinese stock? Pete? I did. Yeah, and, yeah that, was, that was a little bit more risky because of the fact of exactly what you just said. The selling pressure that we've seen on a lot of these different Chinese stocks, this one's Neo. And, uh, mm. you know, you just go back to June 30th, Scott. It was a $53 stock. Now here we find ourselves in the low 40s. And, and is it over? I, I don't really know. But if I'm in the options, I know exactly what the risks are. Today we had a buyer of 5,200 of the 43 and a half strike calls. They were going for about $1.50. Stock was right around that area, trading around 43.50 at the time. So, 
Do I think that there's a little bit of a possible bounce back? Absolutely. And I look at this name and I'm thinking low 40s. It was just 53. I know they're selling pressure on these Chinese names, but I think this one made some sense. And I wanted to follow in on this unusual option activity. All right, gentlemen. I love it. Uh, I know our viewers do as well. Dropping some knowledge on us today. Pete and John, we'll talk to you soon. I know I'll see you back on the show in the days ahead as well. Home builder stocks, they're pulling back recently after a big run over the last year. Now a downgrade from one of the biggest names in that group today. We'll talk about it next. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Shares of D.R. Horton are lower today. The home builder downgraded to sector perform from outperform at RBC. Let's take a look at what we're doing here, because over the last, well, I don't know, month, three months, these housing stocks, Josh, haven't done a lot. As much as you like housing, you don't play it through these names. And I'm wondering, number one, why that is, and then the name you like best in the space right now as well. Yeah, well, I have before I've been in all the housing stocks. I've been in the, the ETF. But I think what's going on with housing now is that the, the, the next wave of buyers are encountering prices that are just completely ridiculous and out of, out of the range of, of normal buying. And that sticker shock has come about, I believe, in part due to all of the excessive stimulus, the Fed buying mortgage-backed securities right now which I can't think of a single reason why they think they would need to continue doing that other than they're not sure how to stop. So if there is, in fact, a taper, uh, I don't think mortgage rates will shoot up, but maybe that market will normalize a little bit. There won't be quite as much financing available, and maybe home prices will come back into a more reasonable uh, range. That's an issue. The second issue is, of course, labor and materials. That's something else that I think will be uh, uh, transitory. I think... uh, I think in September, when the extraordinary uh, federal unemployment benefit sunsets, um, in, in addition to all the manufacturing capacity coming back online, that should help out a little bit there, too. So I think these stocks are fine. I think we're in a 10-year run for millennial household formation. Um, I'm playing it through Leslie's, which is swimming pools, um, not just the installation of pools, but the ongoing maintenance, which is a cash cow business, plus Uh, all the accessories, all the tools they sell to professionals, and all the retail business they do at their stores and online. I think Leslie's is a growth company in a a secular growth business, and I think it's a really great way to play the idea of of home ownership and people wanting more out of their home. Surat, you're also playing it, housing, I should say, through Lowe's uh, before against uh, with Masco, now with Fortune Brands. Again, not through the home builders themselves. Yeah, I, I agree with Josh. I think I'm playing it ancillary through other areas. I mean, I like Lowe's. Uh, it's kind of the second sister to Home Depot, but it's got the opportunity for higher margins going forward. And we're still going to have people spending a lot of money on their homes going forward with the amount of cash that the consumer has. So 
I think Lowe's is the opportunity here. We made money in the past with Damasco. Uh, and you're also getting to these stocks reflected in over the last year uh, the opportunity to make money before really earnings caught up to them. So uh, I think you have to be a little more selective here. It's not as easy as it was about uh, nine months ago. All right. Coming up, more trades ahead, including one stock that's hitting an all-time high amid the sell-off today. And as we go to break, a check on the major averages once again, where we've come well off the lows. Again, if you weren't following earlier, the Dow was down by more than 500 points. It's now down 220-something, so it's cut its losses in half. NASDAQ still down nearly triple digits. S&P is in the red by about three-quarters or two-thirds uh, thereabouts of 1%. We're back right after this. All right, we're back. Commodity stocks taking a hit today in the market sell-off. All right, Steve Weiss, one of those over the last couple of days is Cleveland Cliffs. Jimmy's in it. Farmer Jim. Uh, for those who know him by that. Um, and you, Cleveland Cliffs, and Freeport, by the way, which got downgraded today. What are you doing with both of these? I'm not doing anything on them. I'm waiting for, uh, for Freeport to stabilize. Uh, I had sold the stock just slightly above this level, then mistakenly came back into a trading position above 40. Uh, look, I don't think the copper story is over. I think it's a long-term story because of what's happened with EVs, principal component there. So I'm sticking with it now and looking to add. In terms of, of Cleveland Cliffs, I also own Valet, which is actually more of an iron ore play. We're used to this. I mean, there's volatility in commodity stocks, but I think you can make money in these. Uh, it's not over, and you're going to see the rest of the world come on stream. And don't forget, we talked about Rick Reeder about China possibly easing. That will drive commodity prices higher as well. So I would stay put in these names. All right. Another stock I wanted to highlight today is American Tower. Why, Surat? Because it hit an all-time high today. We got a down tape. Not this one, though. You own that. I do. And this is, uh, you know, this is the leader in towers. And, and they're growing. They've got international exposure. They're in the REIT space. Uh, and, you know, the cash flow here is great. And, and if you look at the way the model works of recurring revenue, as 5G keeps on growing, the stock uh, is going to do very well for the next few years. Josh, PayPal, price target raised today to 360 from 310 at Deutsche Bank. That's you. Yeah, this, this is rapidly becoming one of the most important um, financial services companies in the whole world. It's considered a technology stock by uh, the index committee, but they are incorrect. This is the bank of the future. Market cap-wise, it's now bigger than all of the actual banks. And there really is no financial service uh, vertical that they couldn't snap their fingers and decide to get into. So if you like SoFi, you have to love PayPal uh, because they are like five years ahead of anything SoFi is working on. And they've got huge financial wherewithal to go into other places. So don't be surprised if the young people in your life start buying their insurance from PayPal, start putting their deposits with PayPal instead of a, a physical bank, uh, making all their payments, paying their bills. Like That's what this company has the ability to morph into. And more online users than almost any other platform. So I love the stock. It's expensive, but too bad. It's always been expensive. It probably always will be. Um, and I'm staying long. Okay. Ask Halftime is next. You can send in your questions by video. We'll play them on the air. Email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. We will be right back. All right, let's answer some of your questions now. Liz, to you first from Kyle in North Carolina. I'm a lazy investor with a three-year time horizon, 
all in Fidelity NASDAQ Composite ETF. That's the ONEQ, uh, SPY, or the Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF. What, what, do you, what do you prefer? Hi, Kyle. So I'm not going to call you lazy. I'll say if you're less active, you don't want to try to time this. So let's do this by process of elimination. The NASDAQ is missing some of those cyclical sectors. So I don't want you to have uh, less opportunity in the cyclicals by holding that. The S&P is missing some small caps. So by the end of it, we're looking at the total stock market index. You get cyclicals, you get growth, and you get small caps. I would buy the VTI. Okay. Surat to you from Adam in Charlotte. Uh, My Disney held in an IRA is down 10%. Should I sell or should I hold? I wouldn't sell. I'd add more to it. I think uh, Disney's got some great room ahead of it. Once we get the reopening coming, the theme parks, that's where we're going to make a lot of money. And the whole flywheel of Disney is going to really start working, especially when you look at what they've got with Disney+. Plus. So I like it at these levels. I'd add more to it. All right, Josh Brown, Howard in Las Vegas, wants to know what catalyst will finally prompt Verizon stock to move up. You know what the catalyst is, Howard. It's the day you sell it. That's that's when it goes. Um, look, you have to look at this like a total return vehicle. It's a four and a half percent dividend yield in a world where a ten-year treasury is is paying you less than one and a half percent right now. So the way I think about Verizon, it will be more volatile than a bond. Obviously, I'm willing to endure whatever volatility comes because I'm earning a decent yield on the money that I have invested in the company. Upside capital return for the stock trading higher if and when it happens, is, is really more of a cherry on top. So it's a boring company. It's not NVIDIA. Own it for the right reason. I don't think you need a catalyst. All right, Steve Weiss, lastly to you, Mike in New Jersey. Are you still bullish on Jumia? I am still bullish. Uh, I've sized the position uh, somewhat differently just because it's not a market, in my view, for those stocks. The future is as bright as it's ever been, and they're on track. And we'll hear more in the next earnings call. I do like the stock. What's that mean? You've changed the, How have you changed the position? How have you sized it differently? Well, some of, the, some, of the, some of the higher multiple stocks, I took some of the exposure off. Higher revenue multiple stocks, I've took some exposure off in those. Uh, that was, you know, about a month or so ago. Uh, but I'm still there. It's still a decent position for me. Okay, good stuff. Thank you for that. Uh, final trades are next. All right, let's do final trades. Weiss, Weiss, Weiss. Yesterday you said you were trimming Boeing. Today I'm told you bought some Boeing. Yeah, uh, let me correct you, Scott, as I too often have to do. Uh, yesterday I said, not that I was trimming it, but I had trimmed it. Oh. And uh, I bought it too early for a trade. And I was going to wait for it to stabilize. And I was going to add back to the trading position. Guess what happened? I've got a Dow that's down 200 and change. I've got 30 Dow components, of which only five are in the green, one of them being Boeing. After opening up about four bucks lower, 1% or so, it's had a nice move recovery. So I think this is the point. I think it found support. I think it trades higher. That's why I add to the trade, actually, during the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Liz Young. You're welcome, Scott. Anytime. Anytime. (laughs) Uh, large cap value. Never let a good correction go to waste. I said it before. I'll say it again. All right, Surat. I like Uber. I think this is the play you want for reopening. Stock's been unfairly punished. Uh, I think you want to buy it more, uh, at these levels. All right, TRB. Another all-time high for Invitation Homes. Mm-hmm. REITs on fire. This is one of my favorites. All right. The exchange starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. 
can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.